Now, let me ask you a question. Where do you get your sense of style? Where do you get your sense of what looks good? You know, I think there's one sense that part of that is, in, is inborn, you know, that we are born with it. Some people have it, some people don't. Uh, I, I don't. I have to admit that. You know, I, I have to admit that even when it comes to something as simple as picking out clothes, uh, I rely on others to pick out my clothes for me. Uh, some of you who are my age or older might remember back that they used to have something called the draminals, and that was for teens and, and children, and, and they would have all the clothing would have different animals, and so you would always match a, a horse pants with a horse shirt or, you know, an elephant with an elephant. And, uh, and I, I think that Sandy pretty much has given me draminals. Uh, because, in fact, I, I like basic colors, you know, because I know what white goes with. I know gray goes with black. I can do that. But if anybody gives me anything that is a little bit more colorful, I really don't know what to do with it. And until Sandy shows me, and it's like, okay, well, this, this shirt goes with these pants. And, and, uh, and every once in a while, though, I think I've got it figured out, and I'll come out with an outfit that I've put together, and I'll come down, and, and she'll look at me, and she says, you're going out in that? And, you know, I said, yeah, is it not match? She says... Those pants are a lion. The shirt is a giraffe. Lions eat giraffes. They don't get along. You know, just as, you know, I'll go back up and change. And, and uh, you know, so there's a sense that part of it isn't born. But I think actually most of it is what we pick up from those around us, from the culture. Uh, you know, there's a sense that you look at, at the styles and we, we dress the way that the people around us. Now, if you want even an illustration of that, all you have to do is think of, the 1970s. Uh, the 1970s have been called the black hole of style. And, and you, th you think about it, is there anything lasting of style that has come from the 1970s? And anything, clothing and, and you know, cars even, or de and interior design, anything. I think part of my problem is I was raised in the 70s, so I was kind of forever marred from a perspective of what looks good. And, and, and if you think about it, you know, though there are people that are older than me, and who have a good sense of style. But in the 70s, you thought those styles look good. And, and I didn't even have to look real hard to find things even on the you know, ads that were on the internet of just saying, okay, well, here are these old ads. And, and these aren't like things that I'm looking to find the worst things. These are the ads that designers were trying to sell as what they thought people wanted to see and buy. And, and I think the men's styles were even worse than the women's styles. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I remember, I mean, they have the silk shirts, and I remember having a leisure suit and had the silk shirt underneath, and you'd have like three buttons unbuttoned, and, and uh, you know, you have a chain that you'd be wearing, and, and, and if you're laughing, you, you guys, you know, you're older than me, you wore it too, you've got pictures out there as well. And there were, I mean, there were like onesie, who in the world would ever think that a man wearing a onesie was something that looked good? And it wasn't just clothing. I mean, interior design was, was horrendous. And, 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 and at worst, there were some people thought the height of fashion was to combine the worst of interior design and then have an outfit that matched it, you know? And you just like, <laughs> that's what people thought good. Now, why is it that people thought good? Because there's a sense that we get our sense of style from those around us. And everyone around us was saying these look good. And so we're like, oh, that's what I want to wear. Now, you might be saying, what in the world does this have to do with anything in the Bible? Well, we're in this series, we've entitled it Off with the Old, and, and it's really teaching this idea that, that God is using pictures of clothing to help us understand our morality. 
that we're to have a lifestyle. We, in a sense, wear our lifestyle like clothing, and we're to wear a lifestyle distinctively different, to take off the old, the things that we used to wear that our, that our culture wears, that in a sense we've been using even this imagery here. You could have, you know, somebody would say, hey, this suit looks good, and, and you know, tries to sell it to you, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that it's never gonna look good. And, and either if everyone's wearing it, it's they have a bad sense of style or they're trying to embarrass you and get you to wear out in public. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is, is that in this clothing imagery, we have to ask, okay, we understand we can get our style from a little as inborn, and a lot of it is from the culture. How about our moral style? Where do we get that from? Well, part of it is inborn. The Bible teaches that God has given us a sense of conscience. We have a natural sense of what's right and wrong. But to a large degree, our sense of what is morally right and wrong, what we see as morally beautiful, is in a large degree defined by the culture. And even we live in a culture that often will try to convince our conscience that, well, you might think it's wrong, but it's really not. And the fact is we live in this culture, and the people that we spend our time with, the people that we, you know, that we're around the most, they're going to impact us. Both in our behavior and beliefs, we imitate those around us. The fact is, we will always imitate someone. When you think about it, we will always get our sense of style to some degree from someone. The question is, who do we get it from? Do we get it from our culture that is constantly changing, or do we get it from another source that is unchanging? And we have to honestly try to evaluate ourselves. My sense of moral style, where do I get that from? Now, we've been seeing over these past week, these weeks that Paul is calling us to take off, in a sense, that old moral style, the things that, that we used to define us, that, that define the morality around us, in a sense, to take that off and instead to put on the righteousness of God. And, and we've been, you know, he introduces this idea in verses 17 through 25, and then he illustrates it by looking at some specific areas of sin, where to take off lying and anger and harmful speech and stealing things that the culture might accept as, as okay, but we're to put on things like honesty and forgiveness and generosity, speech that builds each other up. But now here in verse 31, he goes beyond this even picture of specific, and he looks at almost this bigger issue of our attitude and our heart towards other people, this broad issue that is behind all of our relational problems. Look at verse 31. Let us put aside, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He calls us to take off, first of all, all bitterness, all forms of bitterness. Uh, And and it's not only the bitterness that we have, all the different ways that we would express that bitterness. The main thing starts with this attitude of bitterness. And, And in a sense, then you have, okay, this attitude of bitterness, and then there's all these ways we express it. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, that's all the ways that we act in bitterness towards people. But what is bitterness? I mean, we don't usually use that to describe our attitude towards other people, but, but it's, a, it's a very interesting idea, very interesting word. It literally is a, a sour spirit towards anyone. It's this broad word, this broad concept that talks about the sour spirit, this negative spirit, these negative feelings, any kind of dislike that we might have for someone. Now, it might start with those that we think, well, we're angry with, and, but it's not just that. It's actually a much broader description. You know, we may, they may be people we just don't like, we just don't like to be with, and, and there may be people that we have hot feelings of, of, you know, anger and dislike, or it may be people that we're cold towards, that we're just indifferent. We just don't like them. We don't like to be with them. 
So there's any way that we don't like that person, and that's this sour spirit that, that he's calling us to put off. But then we say, okay, well, what does that look like? What does that bitterness look like practically? And here's where we have to realize that it doesn't always express itself in, in the same way. It always will express itself in our actions, but in different ways. And one of the dangers that we may have is that we may look at it and say, well, you know, because of my personality and this, I don't express it in that way. I can see it in the other person. Well, they're really bitter because of what they're doing. But meanwhile, the way that I express it, I, I kind of justify it. I hide it because I don't, my bitterness doesn't look like theirs. I don't think it's really bitterness. And so what Paul does here is that he says, okay, let's, let's look in our heart. Let's look at all the different ways that we can express that and take off all, not only the bitterness, but all these different expressions. And so let's look at some of these ways that he talks about. He says, okay, here's these expressions. The first one is wrath. And uh, in the SV that we just read a moment ago, and other translations have like the New Living Translation, it doesn't have it as wrath, but rage. And it's the same idea. And the idea is that it's outburst of anger. It's, it's the idea of, of, you know, when we think of a bitter heart, this is probably the most obvious thing that we think of. It's somebody, you know, they're, they're bitter and they explode. There, there's this, outpo- you know, this outburst. Now, now, here's the thing. He's saying if you struggle with rage, if you struggle with this outburst, if you lose your temper easily, it's because that at the core you have a bitterness problem in your heart. Now, often you know, our real problem of bitterness isn't the person that we're exploding at. You know, so I might come home and I explode at my kids or, or I see some, a stranger that cuts me off and I lose my temper. It may be people I don't even know, but the fact of the matter is if there is a rage that's there that comes out easily, it's because it's revealing a bitterness that God wants us to seal and that, see and God wants then to heal. So one, some of us struggle with, with rage. The next one is anger. And, and you look at it and you say, well, that's same, the same thing as rage, right? Well, actually not. Actually, he's, what he's actually calling something else out here. Because we can express anger differently. Some people express it as rage or wrath. But some people talk, deal with their anger, and it's not something that they express with heat, but with coldness. You know, this is a anger that stays under the surface, that, you know, that I'm, that I'm nurturing this anger. And, and just because you don't have exploded another person doesn't mean that you don't have anger towards them. And so we have to look at our own hearts on this and say, okay, if you see someone and, and you feel bitter towards them when you see it, when you, when you see somebody and you just, just avoid them because you don't want to talk to them, okay, that's anger. That's an expression of anger, and that anger is coming from bitterness that you have in your heart. And God wants us to see that because he wants to heal the bitterness. Another way that we can express that bitterness is through clamor. And and another way to translate this is brawling, but the emphasis is on our words. And so we clamor, we brawl, we, we argue. It's not talking about people who are in physical fights, but the focus is on the kind of person that always needs to argue. You know, the kind of person that is always finding something to complain about, the kind of person that is always pointing out a weakness, the kind of person that is just disagreeing, who always needs to be right. And, and what we need to realize is that when we look at this, we can hide it. See, the problem with people that have this expression of bitterness is that we can blame it on other people. Well, it's not that I'm bitter, it's that they're wrong. And, uh, and, and so I'm always blaming it on someone else. I'm never seeing it myself. 
But let me give you just a simple test. Okay, do you have issues with people? If you have issues with one or two people, it might be you, it might be them. If you have issues with more than two people, if it's a reoccurring thing, it's, it's probably you. And don't continue to blame it on them. God's trying to, through this, bring this out because he wants to expose it. He wants you to see the bitterness in your heart because he wants to heal it. Another way that we deal that with that isn't necessarily the fighting, but it's, it's what he calls slander. And, um, and, and this, again, is very dangerous because it's a very quiet, socially accepted way of expressing our bitterness, but it's very damaging. Now, we talked about even this, this word last week. You know, when we think of slander in English, we think of harmful speech that is untrue. And uh, so when I think of that, I think, okay, well, God called me out to slander, so I can't say anything untrue that's harmful. And so therefore, we think it's okay to share things that might be harmful that, as long as I believe it's true. I mean, I lived in the South for a while, in Greenville, South Carolina, for eight years. And the South has their own unique way of justifying this. I mean, in the South, you can say pretty much anything that you think to be true about another person. And as long as you add, bless their heart at the end, you know, then it's, it's really saying, I'm meaning it and good. You know, you know, I tell you, Betty Sue, her life is a mess. She can't control her children. Bless her heart. We need to pray for her. You know, and this idea that, well, that's slander. I mean, it's gossip. And the fact that I'm adding bless my heart, or even if I think it's true, or even if I'm saying it's a prayer request, no, that's damaging. See, the Bible speaks about slander. It's any harmful speech about the other person, whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. If it's harming in that person, if it's running them down, God says, no, that's wrong. And if that's part of my speech, well, God's revealing that ultimately it comes from bitterness that God wants to heal. Lastly, we can express this through malice. With all malice, it says. And malice is just this word that means ill will. You know, you know how if you're bitter, do you desire bad things for someone? If there's someone, when you hear something bad happens, you kind of think, they kind of deserve that. You know, I'm kind of glad. Or, or when you hear that something good happens to them, you resent it. You get upset. You don't want good things to happen. You, the fact is that reveals a bitter heart. I can remember one time, in, in, you know, that God really convicted me of this. That I had bitterness and I wasn't aware of it and, and I didn't think I had malice and God revealed it specifically, you know, th through this struggle and this whole thing. There had been somebody who had done great damage to me and my family and, and um, he was claimed to be a Christian. He tried, you know, he justified it through spiritual sound and language. And some time had passed, and I thought I'd forgiven that person. But, but it, when I pray about it, I pray, God, I pray that you convict them and that you really break them of that, and that you really bring them back to Christ. And, and then I remember studying uh, Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is all about dealing with difficult people in our lives. And I remember coming to verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And as I studied it, I realized that when it said, bless those who persecute, it's talking about our prayers. It's saying, pray for God's blessing upon those who persecute you. Pray for God's blessing and don't pray for God's curse. And so when I started to study that, God began to convict me and I started to argue with God. Now, I think that God invites us to argue with him, but I will tell you I've yet, yet to win one of those arguments. I always lose it. You know, I just, just, 
And so, so here it is, you know, I start talking to God, and I said, well, God, I'm praying for his blessing. I'm praying that you would break him and convict him so he'd know the blessing of, of being convicted of a sin and coming back to you, and that's, that's you know, that's what, that's what I'm praying for. And God kind of convicted me and said, okay, what if I work on his heart in such a way that he never apologizes, that he never suffers for a sin, that he's never exposed? And I'm like, but I think he would learn a lot better if you really humble him first, you know. I think he would learn a lot if he suffered, you know. God, and, and the thing is, is that I looked at it, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm claiming to pray for his blessing, but I'm really, was really at my core, I'm saying, God, I want you to curse him first. I want you to break him first, and only then can you bless him. And really, I was just praying for God to get him, and I was putting the blessing at the end to make myself feel a little better. And God, it was really a struggle to say, could you stop praying for him to be convicted and broken, and can you just pray for his blessing? Man, that was hard for me to do because I had this spirit of malice that was in me that God was then revealing that was rooted in bitterness, and I had to let God change me. See, we've got to look at this, and we've got to say, we've looked at this list, and what this is is there are all these different ways that we expect our, our bitterness, our rage, our anger, our clamor, brawling, slander. All these are attitudes that are commonly accepted in our culture. They're fashions that, that people wear around us, but they're things that God says, no, these don't belong on the life of a follower of Christ. And now I have to look at that and say, okay, these are things that have defined me in the past, and I think each one of us has to ask, okay, which one of these do I struggle with the most? You see, I can't hide behind the ones that I don't struggle with and because I don't lose my temper and rage and say, well, therefore, I'm not better. No, I've got to look at it and say, no, God, you're revealing that I've got malice because I can't really pray for this person. That's what I'm struggling with. And I've got to let God expose my area of weakness. And even in this, what's convicting is God doesn't call us to put away some of our bitterness or some of these things, he calls us to put away all of the bitterness, all malice, all slander, all of these things. And so I can't say, well, God, I'm mostly better. Or, you know, I'm, I'm kind towards these people. No, he's saying, okay, who's the one that I'm pointing out in your heart right now? That's the one I want you to deal with. That's where this, this heart issue is being exposed. And it's not only that, but then he calls us to go another step further. Because again, with all of this, what we've seen is it's not only what we take off, but what we put on, that ultimately he wants us to put on the righteousness of Christ. So what is he calling us to put on? He's calling us to put on grace-driven kindness. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And again, he's calling us to put on this new character, to be character of kindness, of compassion. That's not just even what we do, that that's who we would become, that we put on the character of Jesus, that we look like Jesus. But even in this, it even gets more challenging because when it says here in verse 32, you know, be forgiving to one another as, as God and Christ forgave you, the word there is not the usual word forgive. It's, it's, you know, it's a good translation, but it's, but it's actually something deeper. Because literally translated, if I literally translate that section of the verse, it's act in grace towards one another as God and Christ acted in grace toward you. It's calling us not only to forgive, but to, in a sense, go beyond forgiveness, to, to go beyond forgiveness and literally to act in grace. 
Now, here's the thing. If I just stop at forgiveness, there's a sense that I'm saying, well, you deserve this, and I'm going to not give you what you deserve. I'm going to release you from the penalty, the punishment that I think you would do. And and I can release that, but God wants me to do more than that. You see, when I'm thinking of just forgiveness, I'm thinking negative. They deserve something bad, and I'm not going to give them the bad that they deserve. But what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's not only that God doesn't give me the punishment that I deserve, it's that God gives me grace. He loves me. He forgives me. He, re- he brings, makes me a child of God. He gives me incredible blessings that I do not deserve. It's, it's positive in what we say. It's, it's this unmerited favor. And God's calling us to treat the people that are difficult, the people that have wronged us, not only in forgiving them, but now proactively seeking opportunities to be kind, to be tenderhearted. And we might think, that's not natural. I can't do that. Of course, yeah, it isn't natural. But But God's calling us to do it not because we have it, but because we've received it. That's how God has graced us. And it even gets harder because it calls us to show that grace towards people. Now, who is he calling you to show that grace towards? And just think about that. Okay, am I called to be gracious in this way towards the people that are kind to me, that I like, that are good to me? Well, no, that kind of kindness that they don't deserve grace. Well, because they're they're people I like, that's not grace. The people that I need to show grace to are the people who don't deserve it. The most difficult people, the people that are hard for us to love, the people that have wronged us, the people that are hard to get along with. And and he's not calling us just to acts of love. Oh, well, I'm going to do something good. I've I've done my thing. He's saying, no, I want to develop that character of love so that you truly are kind and compassionate and showing grace to the people who don't deserve that character or that that grace. See, it's not just something that we do. It's not a set of rules. it's, It's a changed heart that will result in changed actions. Let me show you even how it works. If you have your Bibles, go back to verse 31. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from from you along with all malice. Now here we're called off to, to take off the attitude of bitterness, the heart attitude of bitterness, and then all the ways that that heart attitude expresses itself in action. So I can claim to not be bitter, but the fact is that if I'm showing malice and slandering and, and blowing up and anger, well, that shows there's a bitterness. My action's revealing that. Now we go to verse 32, and we're called to put on, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And here the order is reversed. He starts with the action. We're to put on the action of kindness. But that action flows from a heart, a tender heart that's driven by a heart that shows grace, that realizes that we relate to the other person with grace. And when I relate to that person with grace, what happens is God changes my heart, so instead of being bitter, I become tender, and then my actions that flow from this this grace-driven heart that's now tender are kindness. It's not the malice and ill will that naturally defined me before. But even where do we live that out? See, again, where this new heart is revealed, where this character isn't just how I treat my friends and my family members and the people that I like. It's revealed ultimately by how we treat our enemies and people that are different from us. See, our, our, act, our true heart is revealed by the people that are most difficult. And whether they're, again, people that we're angry towards and we resent or just people we just don't like or people that we're indifferent because 
They're just, they're hard, they're hard to understand. Look at what Jesus teaches about this in Luke chapter, chapter 6. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is to you, that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, what he's saying here is when we think of the worst of the sinners in our culture, when we think of the drug dealers or whatever it would be, or people that we might you know, identify as the most selfish people who live for themselves, even they show love to the people in their family or in their community that show love to them. Because this kind of love can be driven by selfishness. You see, I'm going to lend to somebody that's going to send, you know, pay me back. I'm going to give to someone who's going to repay me. So I'm going to do it because I'm hoping to gain in the process. Even the worst sinners do loving things. But our, it's not, it's our love towards our friends and, and uh, the people that we like, isn't, that's not what sets us apart. It's our love towards people that we don't like, that are difficult, who have wronged us, who have nothing to offer us in return. So Jesus continues. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil as he was kind to us. See, the radical thing about the character of a change character of a fall of Christ is the love that we show our enemies, that we show towards people that are unlovable, that have nothing to give us back. It's not revealed by how we respond to the people that are closest to us but it's what it, we have to ask, what are our actions and attitudes to the people that are most difficult for us to love, for most difficult, both, again, people that are just we're angry with and, and, and also people that just have nothing to offer us, that are difficult in different ways. That's what shows our character. That's what shows are we really people of grace. See, again, it's easy for us to look at it and say, well, this is, you know, this is my, look at how I have great friends and look, I love the people in my community group and the people in my, you know, friend group and, and the people I go golfing with or, you know, and I can look at this. Okay, no, think about that person that, that has wronged you, that person that you feel that bitterness, the, the, that's the person that God says, okay, that's who I want you to love. And we have to ask, okay, who is that in my life? We have to ask, okay, who is it in my heart that I know right now I really don't want to deal with? I really don't want to forgive them. I don't want to be nice to them. I don't really, I don't want to become tenderhearted. I don't want to let that go. You know, another place that we have to apply this is in our marriages. Now, I'm not saying that your spouse is the most difficult person in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But you know, what's easy and common for us is to be less loving and gracious towards our spouse than the people that we work with every day. Um... The problem is that if we follow the lead, if we wear, wear the moral values of our culture, we define love in our marriage in primarily in selfish terms. See, we love our spouse if they meet our needs. And if they are meeting my needs, if they're making me happy, well, then I'm motivated to love them back. But if the other person isn't giving back, if I've been trying and investing and they aren't giving back, well, then we lose our motivation to try. See, again, that's speaking to this whole spirit that, that he's talking about here. See, what I've realized in my own marriage, it's, it isn't until my wife has disappointed me or angered me or failed my expectations in some way, then the true character of my love is really revealed. Loving her means being kind and tenderhearted and gracious and, 
and not giving her what I think she's earned or only because she's earned it, but loving her in the same way, even if I feel at some time she hasn't, she's let me down. That's what God is calling us to. But how do we love in that way? How can we do that? Because it isn't natural. We don't, that's not who we naturally are. Look what Paul calls us to. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And he's teaching that at the, at the core, how do we do this? Well, you can only give what you first received. You see, you can only love this way if you first have been loved this way. See, and that's what we need to realize is that First of all, we need to realize that God loved us while we were sinners, while we were acting as his enemies. That's when he reached out to us. And if you're here today and you're, I'm trying harder, I'm trying to do good, I'm trying, and if it's all about your effort, you're going to fall short because none of us are innately this good. God's rules, you know, they always expose our weakness. My only hope isn't to try harder and to be good. It's ultimately to say, God, I need to be loved this way. And when I realize that you have loved me, God, I come to you and I bring not my performance, not my goodness. I don't deserve the relationship with you. But I realize that Jesus gave everything, died on the cross, taking my sins upon himself to give me righteousness. God, I agree and I ask you to forgive me. When I realize what he has done for me, you see, then I realize that Okay, well, whoever has wronged me, they've not, they've not wronged me the way that I wronged God. And when I realize how I've been loved, that teaches me to be able to love in that same way. And I, and I might think at times, but I can't do that, especially in a, you know, that difficult people. I just don't have it in me or with my spouse. I just don't have it. I can't continue. Well, that's where you come back and you say, I either have a worldly perspective and I say, I can give up and and, and, you know, and, or I can keep trying harder and take religion and just try to somehow get it within myself, or I can come and understand the gospel. I can admit my need. God, I don't have that. But I admit my need. I admit my weakness. I admit that. And I ask you to forgive me of my, my, my lack of grace. And I ask you to not only forgive me, but to give me. Because that's what cold Christianity is. It's admitting our need and coming to God and asking him to forgive us and to give us his righteousness. Now, we're going to, as we come up to the end of chapter, of chapter, you know, chapter four, it rolls over into chapter five, and just briefly, what is it calling us to? It calls us ultimately to put on the character of Jesus. Look at verses one and two of chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice in God. See, he's called us to put, you know, take these things off and to put these on. And now he turns it around and he says, okay, it's not about just the sins to avoid. It's ultimately about following Christ, being like Christ, being imitators of God. See, it's not just even to do certain things. Here's the rules. Here's the righteousness. And I I put on the righteousness. No, I want to put on God. I want to put on his character. I want relationship with him. And what does he call the be imitators? Literally, mimetai, which from which we get the word mimic. He calls us to become mimics, where we're not just you know copying patterns, but we cop, cop, we become, we try to become like that person. See, we're called to do this as as children, to imitate God as a child would imitate his parent. Anyone with toddlers, you know, you can remember when the toddler, you had toddlers. You know, it's one of the things that's beautiful is how they imitate their, their parents. They do things and they go around. And I think about the things that, you know, my kids did when they were young. And, and uh, 
you know, I think one of the funniest things we think about, like our boys particularly, you know, they'd see me shaving and put on, they'd want to try to shave, put on cologne. And so one day I put on cologne on them and I sprayed them on. I said, gotta go, go let mom smell that. And they, they went down and, and they said, oh, you smell like a man. And so I'd come in the bathroom, and anytime they'd see me in the bathroom, the other, they'd say, dad, I want to smell like a man. You know, and they'd, I'd put some cologne on them and they'd walk down. They'd be like, you know, this to mom, kind of like, you know, come and smell me. You know, they, they wanted to be like dad. Or I think even remember Halloween, you know, kids dress up as superheroes and things like that. I, one year, I had my son, John, and, and I mean, you know, it's my boys. I mean, David's dressed like a super, like Superman. Dave, John's superhero, he dressed like a pastor. You know, he's Halloween, he's dressing like a pastor. Why? Because he's saying, I want to be like my dad. I want to be, that's what he looks up to. And we look at this and we say, God is calling us to be that. And to recognize that it's not necessarily that we're just running away from sins, but that we say, I want to be like God, that righteousness isn't the sin we run away from. It isn't how unlike the world we are, but ultimately how like God we are. But it isn't something that we do by our own effort. It's recognizing, as Romans says, that we need a righteousness from God apart from the law, that we come before God and we say, okay, God, I need you to do that. And then ultimately, as believers, I need to not only give that, but I want now relationships where I seek to be able to grow in you, to know you more fully, because only as I know you more fully, then will I become like you. See, when you think about even our chil- my children, when my kids want to follow me, why? Because, because it's an expression of how close their relationship is with their dad. So we want to become like God through this closer relationship. Our children imitate us because they know us so well, but also because they, they look up to us. They're that close. They, this is the person they most highly value. And so because my mom and my dad, I love them, I know them so well, because I value them, I want to be like them. And that's what God wants us to do to have this relationship where we grow in our knowledge of him, where we love him, and, and because he's most important to us, that's who we highly value. And even in the beginning of the message, I asked, you know, where do you get your sense of style? And we can laugh about where we get a sense of physical style, but ultimately, where do we get our sense of moral style? It's natural for us all to get our style from the world. And that's who we were. But God is telling, no, we should take off who we were and to put on who we are. And you know what? Everybody in the 70s thought that plaid and bell bottoms and platform shoes looked great. And we look back now and we laugh at it. And and in the same way, you have everybody in our culture say the progressive moral style, the progressive morality of our time. Well, that's what's great. You 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 know, that's the right side of history. But I am sure that before too long, we're going to look back and we're going to nod our head and say, man, that was terrible. What great mistakes. And, and it's not only that it looks bad. You see, when we take, make these wrong moral styles because it's out of line with God's design, it not only looks bad, it's destructive. So when we live according to the fashion of the world that does damage to ourselves and to others, and God says, no, I want you not, not to do that, take that off, but to put on the righteousness of God, because that's what true beauty is. You see, we can look at this and say, well, we don't know what styles change. Jesus is the life that has been beautiful and has been recognized as beautiful for 2,000 years. And anything that disagrees with that, we've got to say, if this is what true beauty is, and we've recognized that for, you know, ever since he lived, anything that deviates from that, that's deviating from beauty. It's not only deviating from beauty, it's deviating from health. It's deviating from what's right. 
And I want to align my life not with what the world says, what I'm going to regret before too long, but I want to increasingly align my life with, with God to become imitators of my dad, of dressing like my dad. And that means, yes, letting him point out where I'm still wearing stuff, bitterness and expressions of that that are wrong, and, and taking that off and, and asking him to give me tenderness towards people that are difficult to love. Father, teach me to, to be kind and loving and gracious towards people that, that don't deserve it. But I love only as an expression of grace. And as we come before God and ask him to do that, he can do that, changing our heart from the inside out.